thanks. Thanks for coming tonight. I wouldn't have, but you did, so I'm, I'm glad that you did. I, uh, I brought a couple of visual aids for you, so the, uh, realize that the Reformation didn't occur in a vacuum. There were all kinds of things that were going on before 1517 and eventually after 1517 that sort of made the Reformation the perfect storm. And I want to talk about just two of them tonight. One of them is the bubonic plague, so it'll be like the feel-good lecture of the series. And the other is the... Is that not working? Keep going, oh, keep going. Tell me. Well, you know, we're on live stream, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. I can just do this. The other is the, uh, the invention of the printing press, which was very significant. If you, if you don't realize what an incredible change the printing press made in terms of, of all the things that were going on, you just you can't imagine it. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So first, I named this the Plague Doctor, so I wanted to tell you what, why I named it that and what was a Plague Doctor. So I brought Tanae, one of my dolls. This is a Plague Doctor doll. And you can see he's very much like that plague doctor. The reason that the plague doctors didn't have any kind of medical training uh, in large part, and since there were so many people that were dying during the plague, realized that about one-third of Europe died. So entire cities would die. It was just a horrible thing. They needed some kind of someone to help them with medical care. And so, uh, you know, these guys sort of took over. And they wore this kind of a costume or a, a suit. The, the uh, overcoat was made out of uh, uh, sort of heavy waxed fabric. And that was thought to protect them to some extent from the plague. And the reason that they wore this mask with the long nose is that they would put different kinds of things inside the nose so that they weren't breathing the air from those who had the plague. It was stuffed with with herbs, straw, some spices, lemon balm, all kinds of things like that. Their thinking was, since the plague was spread by breathing in that day, they didn't know anything about germs, they thought, if I breathe through this nose, I'll breathe all kinds of better smells and I won't get the plague. Usually they carried a, a, a cane, a long cane. I tried to make him a long cane today and didn't didn't work out. So, sorry, but he doesn't have a cane. He does have a bag, though, in which they would carry something that they thought might be of help to those who were dying from the plague. So they would use the cane to sort of roll people over so they didn't have to touch them and see if they could do anything for them. Obviously, these plague doctors were not very effective because they didn't, nobody knew exactly what was going on and how it was going to, how this whole thing was going to play out. So today, the primary thing that we want to think about well, two things. One is, why was the plague so important in terms of the Reformation? And then, why was the printing press, which was invented shortly after the plague, so important to the Reformation? So the first thing that we'll ask is, how did the plague help the cause of the Reformation? In 1347, there was a, a trading ship that had come fresh from Crimea. It docked at a harbor in Sicily, and dead and dying men lay at the oars. Many of them totally turned black. Their skin turned absolutely black. And the sailors had, all of them had swelled up, and they just, 
it, it was a horrible, horrible thing. And so what happened was when people began to touch those, those who came in with that, that ship, they started to get the same kind of problems, swelling underneath their armpits, all kinds of very, very serious problems. And then they would die usually five days, three to five days after they had touched someone like that. They didn't realize that what was really causing this, what was the real problem, was that it was caused by fleas. The fleas had bitten into the rats who were the carriers of the plague, the bubonic plague, and then the fleas went out and bit people, and those people then began to, they, they caught the bubonic plague. And all, the mask is not going to protect you from the fleas. That's, you know, maybe the overcoat will if you don't get too close, but you can imagine that during the Middle Ages, they didn't have flea collars and flea spray and any of that kind of stuff, and so there, it just began to be widespread, and it just... It, it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so today, we know that the plague was very widespread. That these fleas essentially just carried this thing all over Europe. And, and more and more people began to die. It killed a large number of people. And so you can imagine that if in your life, you're not sure that you will be alive tomorrow, it will affect how you think about life and death and all of those kinds of things. And there were lots of people who weren't sure that they were going to be able to be alive tomorrow. There were people who went to bed feeling fine and didn't wake up. I almost said woke up dead, but they didn't wake up because the, the black plague had cap it was just so all-encompassing, very, very terrible. And it killed a variety of different people. It killed about a third of the population of Europe. So you can imagine, if, if a third of the population of the United States died, it would be a pandemic. It, you know, it would clearly and easily affect everything in, in your world. But not only did a lot of people die, it also led to the death of many of the priests. Now realize that at this point in Europe, there's only the church. There's no Lutheran church, there's no Baptist church, there's no Presbyterian church, there's just the church. What we today would call the Roman Catholic Church was what existed in Europe. Now, there were other, other churches, the Eastern Orthodox being the primary one. But in large part, particularly in Europe, there, that was the only church that existed. So you, you, when, we, when we think about the Reformation, it's not that Martin Luther is trying to overthrow the Catholic Church. He's trying to help it to get back to the place where it needs to be. One of the problems was that many of these priests died, and because there were so many priests who died, the Roman Catholic Church felt the necessity to put other priests in their place, and many of them were untrained. They didn't know how to read, they had never studied theology, they had never really studied the scripture, and as a result, they were, they were just, they were of no value really as a priest. And as a result of this, they began telling people all kinds of things about the plague and about variety of things like that. And so the plague had a variety of different kinds of explanations, and some of those I think will be interesting to you. Now this is going on about a hundred years before the death, before the birth of Martin Luther. So it's, it's weaving its way into the fabric. And there were a variety of different ideas about why the plague was happening, because they didn't know that fleas were carrying the disease. And so the variety of different ideas you can see here 
the three years that it was at its worst was 1347 to 1350. 25 million people died. So it was just this incredible time of the Black Death, as it was called. And there were a variety of people who were blamed for this Black Death. Uh, one of the people were Jews. Jews were heavily discriminated against, and you can see this in some of the more unfortunate writings of Martin Luther. But Martin Luther is not the only person or the first person to discriminate against Jews. Pope Clement IV argues, argued that the priests should take in Jews and protect them. But many members of the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church at the time, they didn't want to protect Jews. And so they were accused of poisoning the wells, and that's the reason that so many people were dying, or using magic to cause people to die, all kinds of horrid things like that. And it's the kind of thing that you see whenever there's a, a horrible pandemic like that, people look for some sort of a, a scapegoat. And in those days, the scapegoats were the Jews. And so they, many of them were brought and a sword put to their throat and either they would convert to Christianity or they would be killed. So it was a, it was a bad time in the, in the church's history. There's no question about that. But others thought that the plague was God's anger at overpopulation. And so they thought this overpopulation that we brought into Europe has made God angry. And as a result of that, he's killing off one third of us. Others thought that it, it was God's anger at the church. That is, that the church had done so many things that were wrong that God was so angry that he was going to kill a number of them. And so there, you can look back at the church at this time from, you know, 1400 to 1550, and you can see that there were a variety of problems. Uh, some of the priests had concubines, and it was well known. It was known in the cities. It was known by their, their parishioners, very well known. Some of the priests bought and sold offices openly. So if you wanted to be the bishop of a certain town, you, if you had enough money, you could do that. Some of the priests, as a result of that, lived lavish lifestyles. And so if someone needed something from a priest, they, the priest would, would charge them an inordinate amount of money, and as a result of that, they would then live a, a lavish kind of lifestyle. And... This was written by one person at the time. He said, when those who have the title of shepherds play the part of wolves, heresy grows in the garden of the church. And you can imagine that, that the priests, those who were supposed to protect the people and help the people, were actually doing all they could to take from the people, charging them for prayers during the time of the, of the bubonic plague, charging them to get a doctor to come in. So it was a, it was a horrible, horrible time. And this caused so many deaths in Europe. You can see a sense here of how it, it just spread and spread and spread and spread until there were just thousands and thousands of thousands of people died. It caused almost everyone to think about their own mortality. So you can imagine if there are people dying around you, literally dropping dead around you, it's going to make you think carefully. Uh, my father was a minister, and he passed on to me a variety of bits of advice, some of which I haven't followed very carefully. But one of the things that he told me was, uh, don't do as many, few, as many weddings as you don't want to. Weddings are a horrible thing. People will take advantage of you. Just ignore as many weddings as you want. But he said, 
Never turn down a funeral. Whenever somebody wants you to do a funeral, always go and do it. And the reason was, he said, that at a funeral, people come face to face with their own mortality, and they have to think about that. And that's the truth. It's during this time that people are face to face with their own mortality, and so they have to think about what's going on, what's going to happen to me. And it, it had a variety of different kinds of effects. One of them was that some people lived without morals at all. They figured, hey, I'm going to die probably tomorrow, so I can just go out and act any way that I want to. And you can see how unsurety about whether you're going to be alive in a week might cause you to just go out and do whatever you happen to want to at the time. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. That certainly created some of that immorality of the time. Others turned to the church. And you remember that, that Luther's decision to enter the monastery seems to have been driven by deep anxiety. Luther had a variety of deep anxieties in his life. Uh, there are some who argue that Martin Luther had some mental problems, and you know, who am I to talk about that? But he, had, he, he certainly had anxiety about a variety of things, the sin in his own life, his own death. And you can imagine being sort of anxious about, about life and death when there were so many people you could remember. If he didn't remember, he had been told stories about this time when, when people were just dropping dead in the street. So many people were dead, nobody could bury them. And then you remember the famous story of him getting caught out in a thunderstorm and lightning striking all around him, and he makes this vow to St. Catherine that if he can be, uh, if he can be let go and live, that he will join a monastery. And so he does join a monastery. And it's interesting that Luther joins the monastery in Erfurt, and the year later, the bubonic plague, what would happen is it would sort of die for certain periods of time. Sometimes the rats would die because of the winter and things like that. But then it would, all it would take is one flea for it to get started again. One flea biting one rat. And Luther saw some of the very problems with the plague there while he was there in that, in that monastery. And so there were a lot of people who, seeing the problems with life and death, turned to the church. The problem is they found the church wanting. There were things that the church was doing that they shouldn't have been doing. Priests were unwilling to come and hear the last confession because they were afraid of getting the bubonic plague themselves. Uh, in, in one account, which is called the Decameron from this time, the author said, one man shunned another. Kinsfolk held aloft. Brother was forsaken by brother. Oftentimes husband by wife. Nay, what is more and scarcely to be believed, fathers and mothers were found to abandon their own children to their fate, untended, unvisited, if, as if they had been strangers. So it was a terrible time, and people were, you can imagine mothers and fathers seeing that one of their children had somehow come in contact with the plague. They were, they just left them there. And it was, it was a a very bad time. You can see some woodcuts from the time that sort of show you the plague, which is characterized by the skeleton or death, coming upon people. Here you'll see the, the king. So the, the point of this woodcut, that even if you were rich, you could still be attacked by the plague. 
that it, it was no respecter of persons. Regardless of who you were or how much money you had or whatever you did, the plague could still come and get you. So it could get a king, it could get an ordinary worker. Here you'll see a worker at the docks being attacked by maybe a different skeleton or the same one, we don't know. But he's being attacked by this personification of the plague. No one could imagine what was going on at the time. And I should mention just quickly that there were members of the church and there were Christians who took care of the sick. There were nuns who, at risk to their own lives, often cared for other people. So I don't want you to think that everyone who was a member of the Catholic Church was degenerate and didn't care and didn't care about the sick. That's, that's too broad a brush. I don't want you to think that all priests were sort of hellacious people who didn't care about the sick. The problem is this. Those good priests who really cared about the people are the ones who would go into the villages and get with the people and pray for them, and then they'd die from the plague. The ones who didn't care about the people, who wouldn't go there and pray for them, they lived. And so it, they began to exert more, more sort of influence, the wicked ones. And so all of that, all of that life and death and thousands and thousands of people dying sort of caused everyone to think, I have got to think more carefully about eternity. I've got to think more carefully about what it means to die and be brought back to life. I've got to think about what it means to be a Christian, whether, whether that is anything, whether the church really has any truth. I've got to think through all of that. So the plague was a very, very significant part of leading up to the Reformation. But it wasn't the most significant part. It was not anywhere near as significant as the second thing that we want to talk about tonight, and that is the invention of the printing press. So I didn't just bring my doll with me. I also brought something else, an old, this is a page from a 1611 printing of the King James Version. So if you want to look at this, there you go. It's a... <laughs> I say that because I don't want you to think I'm going to hang around all night and let you guys read it. Uh, it belongs to the seminary, so I would leave it here and trust you, but it, it's not mine. Uh, and we have, this is a printed in 1611. We also have, in, upstairs, I didn't bring it down, a 1600s printing of Calvin's Institutes. And we don't just have one page. This is just one page. So it's, uh, back in the back, you can see the other, the back of the page. This is from... 1 Corinthians, and you can, you can read this. It's very difficult to read. The letters are a little different. Even though it's in English, the letters, some of the letters are different, and it's hard to tell exactly what's going on sometimes. But you can take a look at it. It's uh, certified by this guy. He probably doesn't know anything, but just sold this to somebody, and they gave it to the seminary. But it's, it's uh, a very early piece of printing. So if you want to look at it, I'll leave it up here. in English, so you should be able to read it without any problem. So let's think about then this second, this second idea, and that is the invention of the printing press. There have been three great changes in the world of books in the history of the world, and I think it's really significant that we think about these three. The first one is the change from a scroll to a codex. So realize that up until 
a little while before the New Testament was, was uh, really put out, virtually every book that existed, existed in the form of a scroll. So when you read, for example, the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, you'll read about there's no one who was able to open up the scroll. When you read about Isaiah and Jeremiah and the books that they were written, they will be called a scroll. At some point, some particularly brilliant person thought, you know, the scroll is not the best way to read things. How about if we cut those pages and glued them together on one side? So somebody thought to make this. Now, it seems to us like this is the most obvious thing in the world. Like, who wouldn't think that that's the way to put a book together? But somebody had to think about it. It didn't always exist. And so this change from the scroll to the codex, this was a book, a codex, that was a huge change because all of a sudden you could only have basically one book on a scroll. So that's why, for example, Luke and Acts are split, split apart because they wouldn't fit on a scroll together. But somebody thought... Maybe if we do it this way, we can put several books together. We can put all of Paul's epistles together so that people can read them. Or we can put all the Gospels together so that we can read them. So even though this seems to us today like the most obvious thing in the world that anyone could think of this, it, it wasn't always so. The most brilliant ideas are obvious once you see them. You think, man, I should have thought of that. And I'm sure there were other people who, think, who thought, I should have thought of putting together a book that way, but nobody did until it finally happened. So this change from scroll to codex, which happened about the first century A.D., maybe a little before then, and some have argued that it was the Christian church who really popularized the form of the codex so that you could get more, more than one book together. That's the first change. The second change is a change from handwritten to printed. So realize that up until the printing press, if you wanted to get a book, by and large, you had to hire somebody who had a copy of that book or could obtain a copy of that book, and they had to handwrite it out. So up until the, the invention of the printing press, virtually every book of the Bible was contained in a handwritten codex or a scroll. So there are about 6,000 copies of the New Testament or part of the New Testament that are in existence today. Uh, I'll be going, not all of them are, have been carefully photographed, so I'll be going, some of you know, I'll be going to Greece in June to help prepare some manuscripts for photography, and I'll bring back pictures and stuff to show you. I'm terribly excited about that. It's just like the most incredible thing in the world. I can't think of anything that I would put on my bucket list than to go to Greece and go to a monastery and look at manuscripts. I, it's the most exciting thing for me. <laughs> what? So my friend, Dan Wallace, just quickly to tell you, he has a, an organization called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and, and he has gone around the world taking high-definition photographs of these manuscripts, as many as he can, so that when they are destroyed by age or fire or bugs or radical Islam, that we'll still have pictures of them. And you can go to his site, which is csntm.org, and you can see thousands of these manuscripts that have already been photographed. He's always, though, trying to photograph more manuscripts because, as you might have heard just a couple of weeks ago, 
St. Catherine's Monastery, where he'd spent a lot of time photographing manuscripts, was attacked by ISIS, trying to destroy those manuscripts. So it's, 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 the, the manuscripts will not last forever, but the high-definition photography in many ways is better than having the actual manuscript there because it will last and you can look at it more carefully. So I'm excited about that. But all of those manuscripts that were handwritten existed and there were scribes who copied the manuscript. That's what they did for eight, ten hours a day. They would sit there and look up at the manuscript, look down, print, look up, look down, writing it in Greek. And without, I don't want to go into detail because it's not what we're after, but this change to the printed text was very, very significant. The third change, which has happened in our time, is the change from printed to electronic. Think about how much the internet has changed our lives. It's just incredible when you think about it. My son, when he was young, when he was like seven, eight years old, he came to me and he said, what was the internet like when you were a little boy? And I said, we didn't have an internet. And he said, well, how did you find out about anything? And it, it occurred to me then that in his mind, you couldn't really find out about anything without the internet. Who would want to go to a library and look at a card catalog and get the number and try and see if the book was there. That's just crazy. So this change is significant. And the reason I mention that is just as the printing press was significant, not just for the Reformation, but for Christianity in general, all of a sudden, sermons of Luther and sermons of Calvin and all kinds of Bibles and all these stuff, it could be printed very quickly. They would all be the same. They wouldn't be so expensive. And it went around the world. That's the same sort of thing the, that the Internet has the potential for. And that's the reason that at Knox Seminary, we have worked hard to make sure that we can not just teach people here in Fort Lauderdale, but we can teach people all over the world through the Internet. And so we have students... I heard from a student just this week who lives in Beijing, China. We have students in Seoul, South Korea. We have students all over the place. And that's because we're trying to take advantage of this, this amazing tool, the Internet. Now, there are those who will say that's a terrible thing. You ought not to do it. Just as there were those who said that the printing press was a tool of the devil and it ought not to be used. It, it's going to be used whether we like it or not. And so we all ought to try to do the best that we can to make sure that it's used to spread the gospel and to build the kingdom. So this change from printed to electronic is amazing. I mean, think about the, the fact that even 20 years ago, nobody had a Kindle. Nobody. And yet today, you can, you know, get your Kindle and have a book a few seconds after you want it. When I was a kid, if you wanted a book that the library didn't have, you had to go to the bookstore. And you had to get them to try to look it up and see whether or not they could order it. And then you had to wait until they ordered it, and they called you, and you had to go down there and get it. It was a trying process, nothing like the process that we go through today. And so it's amazing these changes that have taken place. And Luther was a visionary in that he saw how important it was that the printing press be used for the gospel. The movable type printing press was invented in 1450 by Gutenberg, Gutenberg Press. Now, there was some printing of books up until that time, but in general, they were, they were printed by, like on, uh, essentially the whole page would be, would be carved out on a piece of wood. It was a woodcut. And so, as a result of that, you couldn't, if, some, if there was a mistake, you couldn't change it. It was very difficult to print a whole book because you had to have all of that, all those pages hand carved out. 
But this was the movable type, and it was very, very significant, and it made a huge difference. So you see here that the Gutenberg Bible is the first book ever printed, first entire book ever printed. This is, that you see, is a Latin Vulgate version. And these were often illuminated by artists. They call that illumination. I'll show you another page bigger in a second. But they would draw beautiful pictures around the text to make it look beautiful. This is a sort of a, a drawing of what the printing press might have looked like as they're looking at what has been printed. You can see that it's not... I mean, imagine, if you will, that someone were to say to Luther back in that day that someday anyone will be able to walk into an office, put a piece of paper down on a glass sheet, and push a button, and that, that piece of paper will be printed. He would have said that's impossible. What we have today is the greatest thing ever, and nothing will ever surpass it. Movable type. Well, things have surpassed it, but it was that that gigantic a change. It was just amazing to think how, how, how many books could go out now that wouldn't have been. They would have had to be hand printed. So this is a bigger, bigger picture of the Gutenberg Bible. You can see they would draw a variety of things around there. Um, there's a monkey down in the right-hand corner. That's my favorite. There are a lot of monkeys in the Gutenberg Bible for some reason. So I'm pretty sure they're Christian monkeys. And I hope to get one someday, but haven't been able to yet. But it was just this attempt to show that these books were really, really valuable and that they were not less valuable than those that had been written by hand, even though they were, they were cheaper. And so the printing press allowed a variety of things to be printed quickly and to go out very, very fast. One of them was the sermons of, of Luther and Calvin and Dwingley and others, realized that there was no copyright at the time. You didn't need copyright when people were handwriting these things. I mean, what are you going to do? It, it just the books were way too expensive to even think about the author actually making any money. And even when the printing press first came out, authors in general didn't take money for their books. They, they just didn't do it. It was <clears throat> sometimes they would take money for mentioning someone in a book or for dedicating the book to them, but in general, these were just put out. So Luther's sermons no longer had to be sort of told by one by one. They could be printed. Luther could look over them and say, yes, it's what I said. And they could be sent out to thousands of people. Another thing that was printed was the Gutenberg Bible that we just saw, which was very, very significant. Uh, the, the Gutenberg Bible was, was just very, very important in terms of getting the Bible out to the normal person. And then there was a Luther Bible. The Luther Bible was the, the best-selling book of its time, amazingly enough. So what Luther did was he, he got Greek and Hebrew, copies of the Greek and Hebrew Bible, and he first translated the New Testament from Greek into what was, you know, just the German of the day. You can still get a Luther Bible. I have one. I'm, I couldn't find it today because my German is, it's bit the dust, unfortunately. But, uh, and I, so I couldn't find my Luther Bible because I haven't read it in 15 or 20 years. But you can still go today, if you want a, a copy of the German Bible, you can get the, the Luther Bible. And Luther wanted to make sure that anybody who wanted to, who could read, could read the Bible. That was really significant for him. 
Because realize that up until this time, the Bible was, in essence, chained either to the pulpit or to the library where it existed. They were very valuable, and no one could take it out of the place. And in many ways, you just it was not something that anybody could read. So they, we'll talk in a moment about what the Catholic Church thought about reading the Bible. But it, 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 part of the problem was you just couldn't get one. It's, it's amazing today to think that in any person's house in the United States, if there's any book, there's a Bible. Even virtually anybody, I would say that you would have a hard time walking into a person over 40 years old's house today and not finding a Bible. Now, it may not have been read in a while, but it'll be there. And that was very significant, and all of that is as a result of the printing press. Another thing that was printed was the Greek New Testament. I won't go into a lot of detail about the printing of the Greek New Testament, maybe some other time I will. There's, it's fascinating about the textual variants that occurred and fighting over who was going to get the Greek New Testament out first and what the, the Greek New Testament that was first published is not the Greek New Testament that was first printed. There are all kinds of fascinating details that I won't tell you about because you probably don't care. So it just, just, it, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, one of the great thrills of my life was I was able to hold in my own hands, one of the first printed Greek New Testaments called the Textus Receptus. Uh, if you've never been to the Holy Land in Orlando, is the one I mean, they have there, amazingly enough, for the, by and large, the Holy Land in Orlando is sort of a grade C theme park. It's not, it's not the greatest theme park, but what they do have there that is just amazing, and maybe, it's, maybe it is a great theme park and I just don't spend enough time at theme parks, but I do know that what they do have that is amazing is a collection of manuscripts, some of them in Hebrew, a variety of some of them in Aramaic, and a lot of Greek New Testaments. And it's a handwritten Greek New Testament manuscripts. So if you ever go there, when you go to the scriptorium, ask them to show you some of that. It's just fascinating. Really, really incredibly fascinating. You might not spend as much time as I did there, but I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. And it will take you through this idea of the printing press and how printing the Greek New Testament was significant because it allowed the translation of the New Testament into a variety of other people's languages. So Martin Luther then printed this. He translated the New Testament into German in AD 1522. It took a lot longer to translate the Hebrew Old Testament. Part of that was because Luther's Hebrew wasn't as good. And here you can see Luther with uh, what he calls his Sanhedrin, that is his translation committee. People who would get together, in theory all of them knew Hebrew, and they would talk about how, they, how this particular passage should be translated. The first two-thirds of the translation of the Hebrew Bible went pretty quickly, but then they got into the poetic works. And if you've ever read, you most of you know, reading the poetry in Hebrew is much more difficult than reading prose, and so it took them a long time. And sometimes they can only translate three or four lines a day. So it took an exceedingly long time. Now, what we should think about is many in the Roman Catholic Church were not happy about the printing press. They wanted to keep the Bible away from the people. In theory, this was because the priests then had the ability to tell the people whatever they wanted to. Uh, you know, they, there were all kinds of very strange uh, superstitions that priests would tell people 
It was commonly thought, for example, that these lights that you see on top of a swamp were the souls of dead babies who had died in the plague. And that's one of the things that the priests would teach people. Some of the priests at least would teach people. And some of the priests wanted to keep the people away from the Bible. They, they just didn't think that an average person with no training ought to be able to read the Bible for themselves. One of the great changes in the Reformation was the change that the Bible was for all people. And that, that doctrine of sola scriptura, that the scripture alone is what we place our, our faith on. That's what we believe. And it, it's not something that was held by councils, not something that the Pope might have said. It's the scripture alone. That wouldn't have been possible if it hadn't been for the fact that the scripture could be printed. If you didn't have a printing press, you can't have all these Bibles. If you don't have all these Bibles, then you can't have a doctrine of Scripture alone. So it was very, very significant. Many priests spoke out against the printing press as a tool of the devil. They said this, this is making, giving people all kinds of crazy ideas because they can read the Bible for themselves now, and now they're thinking that they have the right to interpret the text they have the right to interpret the scripture. And so it's, it's a very significant event. It's the fact that Luther nailed the, the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in, on October the 31st of 1517. That was so critical because of the recent inventing of the printing press. That's what made his sermons be so widespread Calvin's sermons be so widespread, Calvin's institutes be so widespread. It's, it's the fact that they were so able to get all of that kind of stuff out. Now, I want to tell you that not every Roman Catholic felt this way. I don't want to give you such a broad brush that you think that, well, the Roman Catholic Church hated people. They didn't want people to have the scripture. That's not entirely true. There were those in the Roman Catholic Church who did want people to have the scripture. Erasmus is one of them. Erasmus is responsible for the first Greek New Testament, the first published Greek New Testament called the Textus Receptus, which is really the third edition. Erasmus, uh, there were five editions, and the third edition is the first one that has the comma Johannin in it. You remember from 1 John 5 that's textually suspect. So there are all these things that happen with these different editions of the printed Greek New Testament that are fascinating. But Erasmus really desperately wanted people to be able to read the text themselves. And so Erasmus' goal in printing the Greek New Testament was that everyone could read the Bible, from the farmer in the field to the weaver at the loom. And so his Greek text, it was called the Textus Receptus. That's kind of a printer's blurb. It's, they just said, this is the received text. And the Textus Receptus is used later by Martin Luther when he translates the Luther Bible. It's used by William Tyndale when he tra translates the Geneva Bible. It's used by the King James translators. All of these people are essentially trace their lineage back to Erasmus. And remember that Erasmus and Martin Luther had very serious problems with each other. If you go to, there's a page on the internet that's called the Luther Insult Machine. And you can just type something in there, and it'll give you some kind of an insult. Many of those insults were meant for Erasmus. And Erasmus was a Roman Catholic scholar, and so as a result of the fact that he was the scholar who was sort of arguing against Martin Luther, they, they didn't have a good relationship. 
but I don't want you to think that Erasmus was a person who didn't love God, who didn't love the text, and who didn't want the text to get out there. The reason today that we all can come here, and we have, all of us have, at least in some form or another, we have the New Testament, most of us have it with us, on our phone, for example, or in, in a little pocket-sized version, or on our Kindle, or whatever it may be, the reason that we have that is because of the invention of the printing press, and because of the pushing of Martin Luther to get the Bible in the language of the people into the hands of the people, and that was what really drove Luther. Luther had his problems, there's no doubt about it, he did some things that he shouldn't have done, but deep in his soul, what he really wanted was for everyone to have the scripture so that they could read it and come face to face with the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. That's the reason that 500 years later, in, in, in 2017, we are still celebrating the nailing of those theses to the Wittenberg door. And so I'll leave you with one final quote from Martin Luther before we take some questions. This is from Luther. This is the whole, the whole quotation. He said, there's nothing more dangerous than to be weary of the word. He, therefore, that is so cold that he thinks himself to know enough and begins little by little to loathe the word. That man has lost Christ and the gospel. And that which he thinks himself to know, he attains only by bare speculation. So, if you remember nothing else tonight, remember that there is nothing more dangerous than to be weary of the word of God, which all of us have today, and it's an amazing thing. So I hope that tonight you can walk out and you can say, I know a little bit about how the bubonic plague affected the Reformation. I know more about how the printing press affected the Reformation and how important both those things were to what we trace our heritage back. Thanks.